for this book of John and for the truths here in our study today. I pray that you would speak to us through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you got to love a wedding. I love stuff about weddings. So there was a couple on their first night of their honeymoon where the husband wasn't sure how to tell his bride about his incredibly stinky feet and smelly socks. And while the wife was wondering how she was going to break to him to the news that her breath is so far or so awful, which so far she's been able to cover up. Well, after some soul searching, the uh, hushed husband, uh, the hushed, <laughs> get straight. <laughs> after some soul searching, the husband gathered his nerve and said, I have a confession to make. She drew close to him and peered into his eyes and said, darling, so do I. And recoiling, he said, don't tell me you've eaten my socks. <laughs> I thought it was cute. Well, I'm sure none of that was the case with um, the wedding at Cana. I don't know. Well, last week uh, we saw in the ministry of John the Baptist that he did not bear witness to himself, but his focus of ministry was being a witness, bearing witness of Jesus. He wanted others to believe in Jesus personally. He cared about their life. He cared about their destiny as he proclaimed the truth about Jesus. So as we moved on in our study today, we see that there were those who did indeed believe in Jesus as a result of John bearing witness. The stories here are of Andrew, Philip, Peter, and Nathaniel, and they occupy the next three days in this first week of the ministry of Jesus. So let's look at the first believers in Jesus and as his ministry begins. <clears throat> Verse 35 of chapter 1. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. This phrase, the next day, is a continuation of the days that we saw last week in verse 29. So this is now the third day in a row that's being talked about. The second one after John's meeting with the delegation of men who came up from Jerusalem. This third group here of people is just very small. It's just two of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples. They are Andrew and John, the author of this letter, who never really talks about himself in this letter. Again, John the Baptist looks at Jesus as he walked nearby and repeats to his disciples what he had said to the crowds the day before, behold the Lamb of God. The day before Jesus was walking towards John the Baptist, this day it seems he's walking away because he's going to go to the place that he's going to stay. The day before had not caused any of John the Baptist's disciples to get up and leave when John declared Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But on this day, two men made a decisive step which will change their lives forever. John the Baptist was so willing to have his own disciples leave him to go and follow Jesus. His humility and his recognition that he must decrease while Jesus must increase in ministry is lived out here. These two disciples who left John the Baptist to follow Jesus were first exposed to Jesus at this time. Their official uh, call to be permanent disciples is yet to come. John had fulfilled his ministry to be a witness to the true identity of Jesus. He will now start to fade from the scene and the focus is just going to be Jesus. So we look here at verse 38. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. 
So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So Jesus, who knows the thoughts of men, turns to Andrew and John, and he asks them, What are you seeking? Clearly, they had already joined themselves to John the Baptist and had repented of their sins under his ministry. But Jesus didn't ask, who are you seeking? Rather, he said, what are you seeking? This is the first word spoken of by Jesus in the gospel as he starts his uh, ministry. And as one author said, this, this is a master question. It bids them look searchingly at their innermost longings and desires. The disciples answered Jesus by addressing him as rabbi or master or teacher. They want to know where he's staying. They wanted further opportunity to have one-on-one time with Jesus. And they were hoping he would invite them to wherever it was that he was going. Jesus told them to come and see, honoring their request. And clearly, this was an incredibly momentous day in the life of these two men. Andrew, and here, particularly in John's mind, the author of our book that we're studying, because he remembers the very hour he had this conversation with Jesus. It was about 10 in the morning, and they stayed with him all that day. We read that one of the two who hear John uh, the Baptist and, and then followed Jesus was Andrew, and he's the brother of Simon Peter. So then he went and found his brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah, And as you know, Messiah means the anointed one, a reference to the Old Testament prophecies pointing to the Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer, the king of the promised scriptures. As a loving brother did, Andrew didn't just tell Peter about uh, Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus met Simon in his prophetic role, looking into the future, he told him, I'm changing your name to Cephas, which means rock. The great all-knowing God saw in Peter what he would eventually mold him to be, a rock. One day his character would match the name Jesus gave him at this point. And I find that a great comfort. It should be a comfort to all of us who know well the multiple and sizable mistakes and sins of Peter. And yet the Lord knows his heart, knows his character that it would change and he would be used in a powerful way for God's kingdom. That means he's not finished with you either. We who have our share of our spiritual failures in this life, but we keep on, we don't lose heart, we repent, we get back on track and keep growing to be more and more like our Savior. He sees our lives in its entirety because God's out of time and he will keep refining us moment by moment, day by day, chipping away at all those rough, rotten, sinful attitudes and actions in our hearts until we are in his presence, and then the struggle will be over. The witness about Jesus just keeps on spreading. We read in verse 43, the next day he purposed to go to Galilee, and he, that is Jesus, found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the same city as Andrew and Peter. So this is the last of the four consecutive days seen in this first week, uh, this first chapter as Jesus is on his way to Galilee. This time, it's Jesus who took the initiative and gave the call to Philip. No one had brought him to Jesus. One author put it this way, Jesus finds Philip. Philip finds Nathaniel. But it's intriguing to ask the very simple question concerning these stories, who really finds whom? Christians have frequently been known to say that they found Christ or found faith, as Andrew and Philip reported, but maybe Jesus' perspective on these stories uh, would alter such a self-view of salvation. It was not Jesus who was lost. (laughs) Clearly, Philip believed 
though no details are given about the conversation they had, but he believed. And the fact that it was the next day means it was the day after Andrew found Peter and brought him to Jesus. And like Andrew, Philip couldn't keep this amazing news about Jesus to himself, so he immediately went to his friend Nathaniel, whose name means God has given. He was from Cana. We see that in chapter 21. And he was called Bartholomew. That was his surname in the other gospel accounts. They are one and the same man. Philip is so excited to tell his friend that he has found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Notice Philip says, we, we have found, showing that he is including himself as one of the followers of Jesus. And the way people identified other people back at that time is by giving the village they were from and the father's name. So Jesus was legally the son of Joseph, but not biologically. Nathaniel could not imagine that the long-awaited-for Messiah could come from an insignificant town that Moses and the prophets never even talked about. That made no sense. It, it wasn't that he had a bad attitude toward Nazareth people, but it's just that that wasn't even mentioned. So Philip, no doubt, urged him on, and so Nathaniel was going to check this out for himself. As Nathaniel approached Jesus, Jesus said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus, in his omniscience, knew Nathaniel was an honest man, open to examining the, plan, the claims of Jesus and for himself. This is in total contrast to so many who came from Jerusalem to ask Jesus questions who could care less what the answers were. Nathaniel is shocked by Jesus' words and said, how do you know me? And Jesus' answer is even more stunning to him when he says, well, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus sees right into the heart of Nathaniel as he talks about the specific place you were a little while ago, where likely he was meditating on scripture. Jesus knew the location of Nathaniel as well as the thoughts he was having as he was sitting under that tree. Whatever was going on in the mind of Nathaniel, it was clear that Jesus knew all about it. And this man is overwhelmed with the reality that Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows what I'm thinking. And so he answers Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. These are both titles found in Psalm 26, describing the long awaited for Messiah. Perhaps Nathaniel had been thinking about that passage of scripture. It's right rolling off his tongue to boldly proclaim, Jesus, you are the son of God and the king of Israel. In verse 50, Jesus replies, because I said to you that I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? Since this was enough to make Nathaniel a believer, Jesus promises he's going to see far greater things than that. As a matter of fact, there will be 37 miracles recorded in the gospel accounts taking place in his hometown of Cana, not to mention all the miracles done that aren't even recorded for us in scripture. In verse 51, Jesus goes on to assure Nathaniel of greater things when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. If you've studied the Old Testament before, you know the story of Jacob fleeing from his brother Esau after he had deceived him. And he's running away and he's taking a rest with his head on a rock. And he has a dream where he sees a ladder standing on the earth reaching to the top to heaven. And on the ladder were the angels of God ascending and descending. 
And God repeats that great promise to Jacob of the Abrahamic covenant. And in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Well, here he is, (laughs) the one who's come to bless everyone. Jesus is that link between heaven and earth. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is the ladder between earth and heaven. This is the promise, one whose sacrifice reconciles God to man, man to God. Jesus refers to himself as the title, the son of man. He says this about 80 times in the gospels. The son of man would suffer and die, making possible salvation. He'll have the authority as judge. He'll receive the kingdom from the ancient of days, according to Daniel 7. And so we have seen the first disciples of Jesus who came to him for salvation. We see men who Jesus uh, seeks as well as those who sought him. That brings us to chapter 2 and the very first miracle in the life of, and ministry of Jesus. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for Jewish custom of purification that could contain 20 to 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer or the cheaper wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glories, and his disciples believed in him. I love that Jesus attends a wedding. On the third day, refers back to the call of Philip and Nathaniel that we just looked at. So everything we've studied uh, this last week and this week took place in one week. And as you may have read, a wedding was a major social event. I mean, they're big deals to us, but this was way beyond our big deals. As they went on and on, the celebration could last a week. That's some serious RSVPs necessary, I'll tell you what. At this time in history, it was the groom's family and the groom that was responsible for all the expenses related to this vast celebration. The wedding was a culmination of the betrothal period or engagement period. And as you recall from the Christmas story, that was legally you were married, even though you'd never come together. Uh, You'd have to be divorced if you were betrothed, even though you hadn't lived together yet. So on the night of the ceremony, which usually took place on a Wednesday, the groom and his friends would go to the bride's house and escort her and her bridesmaids' attendants to the ceremony and to a banquet. And because the mother of Jesus was there, it's likely this was a wedding of either relatives or close friends of the family. And it appears Jesus' mother had a role in helping with the wedding as she's the one aware that the wine has run out. She's not sitting at a table waiting to be served. And as Jesus had been invited to this wedding, and I'm sure Kit included his disciples to come too, they're all there. And the fact that Jesus attended a wedding and performed his first miracle there reveals the institution of marriage and the ceremony to be so very important to the Lord. I know firsthand all of the planning required for a wedding as I have married off two daughters. 
it's so easy to lose sight in the midst of all of that, the venue, the food, the flowers, the photographer, the blah, 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 the decorations. Um, and you lose sight of the vows are the most important part of that day. The Old Testament indicates that the ceremony is critical to the marriage union as they publicly vow to remain faithful to each other. Genesis 29, Judges 14, Ruth 4, Song of Solomon 3, I'll speak of this. And it was Mary, the mother of Jesus, who realized the incredibly embarrassing situation of the groom's family running out of wine before the celebration had ceased. Wine was a common drink, often diluted with water as there was no refrigeration available to keep things from fermenting badly. The Bible does not forbid drinking of wine. It condemns getting drunk. To run out of wine at a wedding feast, as I'm sure you discussed in your groups, was a huge faux pas. I mean, it was an embarrassment. It could be a stigma the rest of your life for the family and the couple. For Jesus to turn the water into wine then was truly done with a great care to meet the need of a family and their guest. He cared about that. Mary, likely a widow by this time, there's no mention of Joseph since he was 12 and went to Jerusalem as a boy, is helping with the catering of the wedding, and so she tells Jesus they have no wine. I, what, what was she thinking he's going to do? I don't know, you know, do something. I, I don't know what, if she thought he's going to do a miracle. It's not really clear, but she knew of his miraculous virgin birth, clearly, and she had pondered through all these years, 30 years, all the things about Jesus waiting for him to reveal who he really was. And raising a child that never sinned, whoa, that had to, that was a lot to ponder. (laughs) Especially when the others came along. Um, (laughs) She wasn't telling Jesus what to do. She was just reporting to him, this is the situation here. So Jesus gives a rather surprising response to her statement, woman, what does that have to do with us? I know it sounds harsh to us, but it still was a polite way to address her. He was simply saying, why are you getting me involved in this situation? And here, Jesus is making it clear to his mother that I am no longer under your supervision. From now on, he would be doing the will of his father. Mary was now to relate to him, not as her son, but as her Messiah, as the son of God, as her savior. Jesus states that his hour had not yet come, referring to his death and being glorified. Jesus would act only on God's timetable, doing what he wanted him to do, and it was not time for his glory to be revealed. But the miracle he was about to do would be a glimpse of the glory to come. You notice that Mary's not in the least bit disturbed by Jesus' words. It wasn't, you know, hands on the hip, but I'm your mother, and I'm telling you, no. She was aware that Jesus wasn't um, saying no to her request. And so she tells the servants to do whatever Jesus says to do. The word for servants here is not talking about household slave. These were likely family and friends who were helping with catering uh, with this celebration. Let's face it. When Jesus tells them to bring the head waiter a drink from these water pots that they just filled up with water, you have to wonder what they were thinking. But they followed through because Mary said, do whatever he says to do. Mary had confidence that Jesus could resolve this problem. These purification pots were huge, filled to the tippy top with water, making it clear nothing was added to them. And then Jesus transformed the water into wine, and such a huge amount of wine at that. 
It was 120 to 180 gallons, far more than enough needed for the rest of this celebration. And as the wine was brought to the head waiter, he's so amazed that the best wine is served at this late stage in the celebration. Apparently, it was not uncommon in the experience of a head waiter uh, for people to bring out the crummy stuff as they're thinking people will be oblivious to it by this point. But this was the best wine ever. How amazing it is to just reflect on the fact that Jesus created the best wine and a large amount, all that would be needed. This same Jesus is the one who is able to supply your every need as well and cares about every detail in your life. This sign was the first one by Jesus. Many more would come. We see Jesus display his power and his glory and his love. We see here Jesus, the bridegroom of his own church, is honoring the bond of marriage. He is infinite in power and love, and he truly is the Son of God. How kind he was to this bridegroom and his family, and this bride too, as he performed this amazing miracle with such a heart of compassion and a concern for them and all the family. We notice his disciples believed in him. At this moment, they were a witness to this incredible miracle and the power of Jesus. They had already expressed faith in him, but it was definitely confirmed. That brings us to the zeal of Jesus. At this point, the family heads home to Capernaum after the wedding, and then it was time to go up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. That was always to be celebrated on the 14th day of Nisan, which always falls within March or April. It was to commemorate, as you know, the deliverance of Israel as a nation from the bondage of Europe, of Europe, of Egypt, (laughs) that too. Uh, Jesus went up to celebrate this important feast that was followed by the Feast of Unleavened Unleavened Bread. And you know the story how an innocent lamb who would be kept by the family, then they'd have to slay that lamb and they had put the blood on the doorpost so the angel of death would pass over that house. So the Passover was supposed to be remembered every year and everyone was supposed to go up to Jerusalem for it. So as you read in your lesson, Passover had become a big business for merchants who now set up tables in the complex of the temple. They sold oxen, sheep, and doves for all the pilgrims coming from long distances to buy these animals that they would need for the sacrifice. The money changers then took the foreign money of people and charged an outrageous fee for the exchange of money to rip them off. What was supposed to be a service to the Jewish people traveling from afar turned into total exploitation so that the father's house became a den of robbers. This once sacred temple grounds was now more of a bazaar and there was no reverence or worship. You can't hear the sounds of praise and prayer over the din of the animals and the vendors calling to my table. Jesus saw the honor of God being robbed when he quickly took action to put a stop to all this. He made a scourge of cords and drove out all of the merchants along with the high cost, inflated cost of the animals and then poured out the coins of the money changers as he overturned their tables. This is righteous anger that could not tolerate such a mockery going on in God's house. The zeal Jesus displayed made it clear that the temple was his father's house. In the other gospel accounts of this event, Jesus quotes the Old Testament as his authority. And when confronted by the religious leaders who said you could do this, he points to the sign of the temple of his body being destroyed and raised up in three days, which of course will come back at his trial to be misunderstood and misquoted. 
And while all this is going on, the disciples recall a prophetic verse from Psalm 69 about the zeal for my father's house will consume me. And I have just a brief thing from Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges talking about anger. He says, some people justify their anger as righteous anger. They feel they have a right to be angry given a certain situation. First, Oh, then how then can I know if my anger is righteous anger? First, righteous anger arises from an accurate perception of true evil. That is, as a violation of God's moral law. It focuses on God and his will, not on me and my will. Second, righteous anger is always self-controlled. It never causes one to lose his temper or retaliate in a vengeful way. He goes on to say, I believe many Christians live in denial about their own anger. They consciously experience the flare up of negative thoughts and emotions towards someone who has displeased them, but they do not identify it as anger, especially a sinful anger. They focus on the other person's wrongdoing and justify their own reaction to it. They do not see their sin. Consequently, their anger is acceptable to them. They sense no need to deal with it and his prayer in this book and obviously our prayer is that we deal with our own sin of anger. And even something that might disturb you that you feel is dishonoring to God, if you let the sun go down on your wrath, Ephesians 4 tells us, that you give the devil an opportunity in your life, even if it was for a righteous cause. We're not to linger with anger of any kind for any reason And we all know that the reasons are mostly about my offense, about what someone did. The last few verses of this chapter state that many believed in his name as they observed the signs he was doing. While in Jerusalem, Jesus performed signs and many believed, but their faith was just superficial. It was like that of James 2.19, where even the demons believe. They have that kind of faith. They know who he is. They believe he can do miracles. Jesus knew all men and he was not entrusting himself to them. He knew what it was in the hearts of people. He looked into Nathanael's heart and saw a seeker of the truth. But the people here were attracted to him because of his miraculous signs. They were outwardly attracted to Jesus. But he demands that he be Lord of your life, that he be worshiped, that he be obeyed, that he be adored, that he be in control of your life. Jesus is able to look with that penetrating vision right into our hearts and knows exactly what's deep inside of each one of us. For he himself knew what was in man. And that really is the transition statement that takes us to chapter 3 where a certain man will seek out Jesus by night in order to talk to him. The fact that Jesus knows uh, what's in the heart of the mind and mind of every person is the evidence that he is deity. So what does he see when he looks in your heart? What's in your most innermost thoughts that even people who know you well know nothing about? Is it a heart of submission to him being the Lord of your life? It's like you can have this much, but I have to have certain control of this area. Is it rebellion that you have to determine how your life is going to go and how you're going to make it go and you're going to have your way You're going to justify it with some scripture verse or find some message on the internet that justifies why you're going to do what you're going to do. No, Jesus looks right into our heart and he knows what we're thinking and he knows the areas that we have not surrendered to him. So do that. This righteous anger that we saw today in our study is going to come back 
and be the experience for all of those who refuse to surrender to Jesus' authority over them. As he says, depart from me, I never knew you at, ju at the judgment day. I pray each of you will have a tender heart that is willing to submit to him and come to him on his terms, not yours. Remember who he is. He is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us so that he could pay an eternal debt we could never pay on behalf of sinners like you and me. Someone with a heart of compassion that wouldn't want a groom and his family to be embarrassed. He would change that situation with a miracle. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your obedience. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for revealing to us more and more about Jesus. And in doing so, you also reveal to us the level of behavior and attitude and actions you expect in us. Lord, I pray that we would have genuine, committed faith to love you, to obey you, to not just call you our Lord, but to actually be in submission in our hearts to the fact that you are Lord. I pray that we would look and that your spirit would reveal to us if there is anything in our hearts that we are holding on to that we are not going to let go of. Lord, bring conviction of sin that we might repent and be right with you and live a life that pleases you, that honors you, that gives you glory for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies.